Pop Culture Affidavit, Episode 20, Eddie Lives. The dark side's calling out on the misery. She'll never know just how I feel. Out of the shadows, she walks like a dream. Hello and welcome to episode 20 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that looks at everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. It's been a while since I posted an episode, and the fact is, well, this episode's also a couple of weeks late in getting out. October, to be honest with you, is all sorts of nuts every year. Uh, This October was no exception, and without getting into the details, it was extremely busy. Um... I did have time to record if I wanted to, but it actually took a while for me to sit down and find the time to watch uh, a movie I'll be talking about, and well, then finding the time to record actually did get away from me. But here we are, and this time around we're looking at a rock and roll ghost story, the tale of a legend of a band from Jersey and their lead singer who died way before their time. That singer is Eddie Wilson. The band, Eddie and the Cruisers. If you're familiar with Eddie and the Cruisers, you're probably familiar with the 1983 film starring Tom Berenger, Ellen Barkin, and Michael Pere as Eddie Wilson. And I'm going to talk about that film, and it's less than, less than mediocre sequel. But I'm going to start at the movie's source material for this podcast, uh, and that is a novel by P.F. I'm going to say P.F. Kluge. Uh, or Klug, K-L-U-G-E. So Klug is a native of New Jersey. He currently lives in Ohio, where he is a writer in residence at Kenyon College. He is the author of several novels, including Dog Day Afternoon, which was made into the cl- a classic Al Pacino movie back in the early 70s. Eddie and the Cruisers was published in 1980. I'm not sure what the sales figures were, if it was a bestseller or anything like that, because uh, Martin Davidson, who directed the film and also co-wrote the screenplay, optioned it actually with his own money, which is not what usually happens when you're optioning a book for a film. Usually the studio or somebody says, we want this, and and, uh, or they get some sort of money behind it, and they can do that, and that wasn't wasn't what happened. So the film itself is clearly a labor of love, and if you've read the book, uh, which I picked up, up off of Amazon, uh, the book is, is obviously a labor of love. Uh, the book, by the way, had been out of print 
for a number of years uh, after the film came out. And I recently got it off of Amazon.com because it had been reissued by the Overlook Press. And it's available in both paperback and Kindle. And I have to say that I was pretty excited to see that because Eddie and the Cruisers is one of those movies based on a novel that I've loved for quite a long time. And I've always wanted to track down the source material. I mean, for me, it's right up there with uh, Gene Shepard's In God We Trust, All Others Must Pay Cash, which inspired A Christmas Story, Peter Benchley's Jaws, and uh, Cameron Crowe's Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I've read Shepard's work, I've read Benchley's novel, but that's because both have uh, been pretty easy to come by. I got Jaws off a paperback spinner rack in a gift shop in New Hampshire one time years ago, and uh, they, uh, the publisher, Shepard's publisher, has taken uh, the essays from In God We Trust All Others Must Pay Cash and just collected those specific essays into a Christmas story kind of collection, which you can probably get at Barnes & Noble. I recommend both. Um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, still out of print. Copies on eBay go for way more than I'm willing to pay for an out-of-print paperback copy or an out-of-print hardcover copy of a book, which is really annoying. Maybe one day I'll actually get a copy of the book and... Uh, because I'd love to do a Fast Times episode, but I really want to watch. Because I, I, I love the movie, but I really want to read the book. Anyway, back on topic, um, I did read Kluge's novel, and even though I hadn't watched the movie in a number of years, I was impressed by how much I remember of Davidson's film does follow along with its source material, even though there's some derivation. But both of them, to be honest, stand on their own. In other words... You can enjoy Eddie and the Cruisers, the film, without even knowing it was a uh, it was a book, which I did for a number of years. The story, of course, uh, is about a band from the late 1950s, early 1960s, named Eddie and the Parkway Cruisers, or as we know them, Eddie and the Cruisers. They're a bar band from New Jersey who are led by Eddie Wilson, a rock and roller who was much bigger than the band backing him up. He's so big, in fact, that he seems larger than life. And he looms larger in life throughout the novel because uh, the novel's told in the present day in 1980, and Eddie's been dead for the better part of 20 years. It's the resurgence of the cruiser's music because of its being covered by some British new wave pop band that acts as the MacGuffin for the story, as well as the fact that there are supposedly tapes in existence of another Eddie Wilson recording session, tapes that went missing after Eddie's fiery highway death back in the early 1960s. The tapes, by the way, are of a secret session that Eddie and his saxophone player, Wendell, put together with several rock and blues legends, a session that probably would be the stuff of legend today, uh even in our real world, but when you have a guy like Eddie, uh, it proved that perhaps he wasn't as great as he had hoped, and, well, we're not exactly sure, because nobody's heard the tapes. So, that's kind of what gets the mystery going throughout the throughout the book. Because uh, the narrator of the novel is Frank Ridgway, who was the keyboard and lyricist for the Cruisers. He was the last person to join the band, and at one point, Eddie nicknamed him Wordman, due to the fact that he was a college guy who brought more than intelligence to the music Uh, and lyrics of the cruisers and as we find out through the book and we see in the movie he's the one who kind of starts to plant the idea inside of eddie inadvertent as it was that the rock and roll singer was determined for something bigger than playing dive bars the rest of the band 
consists of Kenny on drums, Wendell on sax, Joanne on vocals and tambourine. She's also Eddie's girlfriend. Sal on bass, and they're managed by Doc Robbins. And when we open, Frank is a father who has just separated from his wife. His family's in New Jersey, but he is living in a trailer park in Florida because he is basically in hiding. Why is he in hiding? Well, some time ago, a reporter from Rolling Stone came to see him about Eddie Wilson, the resurgence of the cruiser's music, and the supposed tapes. Then, people started getting killed. And what we get is Frank going to each of his former bandmates and flashing back to his days in the band and while having his marriage implode. (laughs) Uh, And this all eventually comes to a head when Frank does discover the secret behind the supposed tapes and the identity of the person who has been going after the peaceful associated with them. I'm really not going to get into the plot of the novel, uh, mainly because I'm going to be spending a lot more time in the movie, which is probably more well-remembered especially since the film has been run and rerun and been available on video since the early 80s and the novel was out of print for the better part of a couple of decades. But I'm also going to give this, I'm giving this shorter than usual review of the novel because I really don't want to reveal too much about the specifics of the plot or spoil anything because I recommend going and picking it up yourself. Because um, it's one of the best rock and roll ghost stories there is. Eddie's not alive or in hiding. He, he actually is dead. Um... And there's no question as to whether or not Eddie lives, so we don't have to deal with that. And it doesn't drive our plot, which is good. What drives our plot is, yes, the resurgence of his music and the existence of these tapes. But what kept me there was Kluge's characterization. Frank and his bandmates are all various illustrations of faded glory and what it's like to be washed up. Eddie looms over his band, but as much as he is a legend, he haunts them. Doc, who doesn't see any of the royalties from the resurgence of the music because he stupidly sold the rights the years years before, is a washed-up, fame-hungry DJ in the Poconos, for instance. Sal, who is Eddie's best friend, runs an Eddie and the Cruisers revival show. It's all very sad. And you find yourself feeling sorry for many of the characters, especially Frank, because his marriage is completely falling apart. His life seems to be falling apart as well. And Kluge captures the life of a summer at the shore bar band that just puts you in dives and other places they play. And getting the sound and feel of the music across the way he does, well, that's not easy. Um, you know, it's not my era. It's not my music. I, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, but this is the era of music of my parents. Um, but even I feel like I'm there when I'm reading it, and, and I even I feel for Frank, and I, and I want him to, I want him to win in the end as much much as he can win in this scenario, and uh, I want, you know, I, I want all of the the, the cruisers to kind of come to terms. Um, especially Frank, with their feelings toward Eddie, who has gone too soon, and and as they combat this kind of weird, the weirdness that nostalgia brings, and and kind of your, to quote Springsteen, your your glory days, you know. Um, so go to Amazon, or better yet, go to TwoTrueFreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link, and then buy it doesn't cost you anything extra but it helps out a couple of uh, some friends of mine who have some great great podcasts anyway go there get a copy of Eddie and the cruisers um it's available on kindle it's available on paperback and i think it's less than 15 dollars. i think my copy was maybe nine or ten bucks and uh then come back after these messages for my look at the film
My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I, well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. No sense in ever playing music again, sir. It was 18 years ago that a turquoise Chevy convertible went off the Raritan Bridge. Its driver was Eddie Wilson of Eddie and the Cruisers. His body was never found. You ever wonder what it might have been like if he was still around? I used to wonder. It ate me up. And some nights it's like Eddie's still alive. Understand. I yet he died, the cruisers died with him. There was magic in the night. A sweet love song. Frank, what happened that last night at the recording studio? The night that he died. There's no way on earth I'd go into that with you. Last night, there was a car sitting in my driveway. Just like Eddie's. He blinked the headlights high and low and high again. Just like Eddie.
So Eddie and the Cruisers was directed by Martin Davidson, produced by Aurora Pictures and distributed by Embassy Films, which did not do a very good job of distributing it. They were trying to get it out in the summer, and the uh, scheduling error delayed the summer release until September. And as a result, the movie only made $4.8 million at the box office in 1983. It was the 103rd highest grossing movie of 1983, and to give you a little context, the biggest year movie of 1983 was, of course, Return of the Jedi, $252 million total gross, although part of me wondered, that might be adjusted, and I don't know if, I'm pretty sure Box Office Mojo separates releases. For, for a movie like Jedi, because there was an 85 re-release and there was a special edition um, as well. And I noticed on the uh, box office figures for 83 that there were a number of re-releases and reissues. So I would say maybe that's a bo- a just the box office gross. So Return of the Jedi, $252 million. Some other movies that year were Flashdance, $92.9 million. Risky Business, $63.5 million. Superman 3, $59.9 million. And DC Cab, $16.1 million, Which I mentioned because it's DC Cab. The directorial debut of Joel Schumacher. DC Cab. The movie, of course, well, Eddie the Cruisers is considered a bit of a box office failure. Uh, it's not as much of a bomb as its sequel, and I'll get to that later in the episode. But it did gain status as a cult classic because it was one of those early movies rerun on constantly on HBO and in syndication, and it found its own life on home video, which in 83 and 84 was still in its infancy. But the rental shop industry was definitely on the rise as more and more movies were coming out on video around this time. So people were picking it up i first saw the movie i want to say like in 88 i remember um having teeth pulled uh i i had this problem with my baby teeth and that they didn't fall out and several of them they had to be pulled so over the course of my life i've had 13 teeth pulled between the time i was in the third grade and the time i was in the seventh grade of uh, the eighth grade sorry so i had just had four teeth pulled and I was on the couch, uh, half out of it, and I probably doped up on codeine, drinking a carnation instant breakfast because I couldn't eat any solid food for the moment because I was all puffed up. My dad was trying to help me find something to watch on TV because I was kind of in and out and I was bored. And uh, Channel 9, which is WWOR out of New Jersey, which uh, which I watched for Mets games, but there was no Mets game on at the time, was supposed to be running... Uh, According to the TV Guide, it was supposed to be running some Ed Begley Jr. movie called Transylvania 65000 or something, and I don't know why, like, when my dad said, hey, you can watch this, I was like, okay, I'll watch this, and I don't know. But instead of running that movie, which the TV guy said it would run, it, uh, it, Eddie and the Cruiser started, and I remember my dad walked in, he's like, how's the movie? I was like, well, this started, and I said, it's about this band or whatever, and he said, oh, this might be a good movie, so I watched it, and I think I got maybe about 20 minutes in until I fell fell asleep, because I don't remember watching the whole movie, but I did remember the movie well enough that when sometime during like my junior or senior year of high school, I came across it at random again, and it probably was on television again, it was probably just rerun on like... Um, uh, PIX or WWR or something. I mean, for all, for all I know, I might have like it randomly said, "Hey, 
I remember that movie Eddie and the Cruisers. Why don't I track it down to the video store? Because I did that with movies from time to time. Used Cars being one of the best examples of that. Ooh, I should do an episode on used cars. Um, so, and I was on an 80s kick through a lot of high school. Um, <clears throat> so, I watched it, and I watched it all the way through this time, and I really, really loved it. In fact, I love this movie so much <laughs> that when I saw the soundtrack in the bargain bin at Nobody Beats the Wiz that February, I bought it, and I still have it. Um, I don't have the soundtrack to Eddie and the Cruisers 2. However, both of them are on iTunes, and I did download like two tracks from the from Eddie and the Cruisers 2 soundtrack, which is not a bad soundtrack. It's a bad movie. <laughs> Uh, the soundtrack I will talk about a little later because uh, I want to talk about the movie first. And um, this is like singles, like Reality Bites, and the occasional other movie where the soundtrack kind of outshone the movie or at least was more successful commercially. Um, but the movie is really, really good. And uh, it follows the novel pretty closely, although, like I said, there's some derivation. We open uh, in a news studio or in the production room of a news studio with Ellen Barkin, uh, who plays Maggie Foley, a television journalist working for a news magazine show. She's talking with her producers about how she wants to pursue a story about the death of Eddie Wilson and a supposed unreleased album called A Season in Hell. Uh, Barkin's character is basically a combination of two of the characters from the novel. First, the Rolling Stone journalist... Uh, that tracked down Frank to begin with, and then he had a female companion who was kind of a girlfriend and kind of not a girlfriend. Uh, she ended up sleeping with Frank at one point uh, in the novel, which, again, it's because his marriage is falling apart and there's all this just this tension that's left out of the movie. Uh, I think it's left out of the movie for a good reason. I think it would have it would have overblown things a little bit or it would have made it... It would have changed the feel of the movie, and I think I'm glad that they left that out because it's one of those things that works for the novel yet doesn't wouldn't work in a movie. Anyway, um, Maggie and Frank don't sleep together anyway uh, in the film, and there's a sense of flirtation between those. And Barkin, you know, Barkin plays like a very sultry Diane Sawyer type. And it works really well. And she's not in the movie for that long, to be honest with you. She pops up every once in a while, uh, especially when it's when it's necessary. Her, her not Ellen Barkin, but her character is more or less a plot device, uh, something to get Frank to track down the other members of the band and talk to them. Uh, but she does approach Frank Ridgeway, who is played by Tom Berenger. And at the time, Berenger's star was on the rise because of his involvement with 1982's The Big Chill. Uh, another nostalgia movie for the 60s. Uh, Frank is teaching English at a high school in New Jersey. He seems to be awash in nostalgia lately because the cruiser's music has been just had a resurgence on the radio. He's not interested in take, talking to Maggie, though, especially about these tapes for A Season in Hell. And then again, he doesn't necessarily know where it might be. Nobody does. It supposedly died with Eddie. <coughs> but someone out there does not believe that. Someone out there does want the tapes because after talking to Maggie, Frank comes home to find his trailer completely trashed and he gets a call from Doc, who is played by Joe Pantoliano. And in case you're wondering if Joey Pants plays against type, no. He is the perfect slime ball manager. And 
or he was. Now his uh, profession is that he's a 1970s, 1980s soft rock DJ. Uh, and he still regrets not making it big with the Cruisers. In fact, he's more regretful now because years ago he sold the rights to all their songs, and this recent revival is not netting him a single dime. Uh, Maggie, by the way, has talked to Doc already, and uh, Doc meets up with Frank. Doc brings Frank back to his place to show him that, yeah, his apartment has been ransacked as well. Somebody wants these tapes, and we're not sure who. Over the course of the film, we will learn what happened to the other cruisers. Of course, Frank is going to go visit uh, Kenny and Sal and Joanne. Uh, but we also get the story of Eddie and the cruisers from back in the 60s through a series of flashbacks to the summer of 63 on the Jersey Shore, where the cruisers begin a long stand at Tony's Mart, Tony Mart's, a bar. Uh, this is where they meet Frank. Frank was working there for the summer as a college student. He was sweeping the floors, mopping the floors when they walk in. And when they walk in, they make one of those rock star type of entrances to the bar. You know, Frank's sweeping up and they're, you know all the stools are up and they're not really open. And they all just stand there in like album cover pose, looking at him all like tough and rock and roll. And Sal, Sal Amato, who's played by Matthew Lawrence, uh, who the only other movie I ever remember him in is... Uh, St. Elmo's Fire, he plays Demi Moore's next-door neighbor, gay next-door neighbor, who she tries to set up with Andrew McCarthy. Anyway, Sal comes in and says, tell Tony that Eddie and the Cruisers are here. Like, as we get to know Sal, is a very Sal thing to say. It seems that each member of the band itself actually has its own personality, although they do fall into this sort of trope. And there are all these kind of wayward, lost souls. Like, they didn't all take the straight and narrow path after high school or something. And uh, you got Sal. Sal's a lanky Italian guy who's Eddie's best friend. And you can tell Sal's always been kind of the nerd of the band. The one who will never be as cool as he thinks he could be. Kenny, who's probably the one we see the least of in the flashbacks, uh, is more of a, just this workman-like drummer. Wendell, who's actually older than everyone else, he's about 35, 36, 37 or so, uh, I think he's 37 actually, is the sax player, and uh, we will find out later that he's actually uh, addicted to, to heroin. Joanne is uh, played by um, Helen Schneider, an actress, an actress named Helen Schneider. Joanne is is uh, Eddie's girlfriend, and she is... She's sexy, man. She is, and she's like, she's Jersey sexy in a way that actually makes that look good. Not in a snooky kind of way, but she's, you know, Italian girl, like, almost like a Rizzo from Greece type. And uh, then there's Eddie, and Eddie's played by Michael Pare. And uh, now we've seen Eddie prior to this moment because we saw a clip that Maggie was playing in the opening scene, this performance of On the Dark Side, uh, that was from a clip from an old concert. But, and the only other clip we saw of Eddie was, was a picture of him and, and footage of the police hauling Eddie's 57 Chevy uh, out of a river. But he makes this entrance at Tony Mart's, and it seems already that he's larger than life um, because Michael Pere is so good as Eddie Wilson. And I have to say that in the film, uh, there's an enormous amount of similarity between the music of the Cruisers and the music of another famous New Jersey act, 
Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. I mean, so much so, in fact, that the band that, that provides the actual music, John Cafferty and the Beaver, Beaver Brown Band, has a very Springsteen-esque sound. Uh, but it works. It works in a great way, even if it's a little anachronistic, because that was one of Janet Maslin from the New York Times' biggest criticism, that the music doesn't sound like it would fit in the era that it was supposedly flashing back to, but it's still good, and it, you just kind of let that go. Um... So the band starts rehearsing, and at one point they're rehearsing this song called Betty's, Betty Lou's Got a New Pair of Shoes. And Eddie's like, stop the music, and he's griping at Sal that it doesn't sound right, and Frank points that they need a chaseur, which is, or césure, which is basically a pause meant for effect or em- even emphasis. And I think Eddie at one point says, yeah, a cesarean. Uh, and, and Frank demonstrates that he grabs some poetry, and I believe it's by Rambeau, because uh, Ram- uh, Rambo is, is mentioned several times in the film. Uh, Frank demonstrates this, what a caesura is, and he says, uh, he recites it, he recites the poem with and without one. Eddie turns to Frank, he says, yeah, we need the caesarean, you know. And, uh, you know, Eddie, Eddie comes off as dumb, but as he begins to get to know Frank, we see that there's a lot more going on there than this sort of tough guy greaser type, you know, the black jeans, the black tee, and the, the hair, and um, Sal, not too happy, but too bad, right? It's Eddie's band. And uh, eventually Frank becomes the keyboard player, and he gets and he becomes the lyricist, and he gets the nickname Wordman. At first, Frank's memories of the band are pretty sweet. There's a jam session where they write on the dark side together. There's some really, really great performances. He and Eddie have some great chemistry, and... Uh, this causes, like you said, it causes Eddie to start to open up to him and tell him how he wants to branch out beyond this sort of dive bar band and and do something that really kind of makes people pay attention. And this is what will um, eventually become a season in hell, the second album that is almost like a high concept album, uh, something that would be more akin to something you hear in maybe the, the later 60s or 70s, but, it's, but the whole idea was that Eddie was ahead of the time. And we see a bit of what would actually be Frank's infatuation with Joanne, which also comes up. But as we flip back and forth between the present, where Frank visits all of the cruisers, sometimes with Maggie in tow, sometimes not, we see that nostalgia, well, nostalgia's a hell of a drug. And things were not always as great with the seam. And that starts when we get to see Sal for the first time. Sal's running uh, this show. The, the original cruisers featuring Sal Amato. The original Eddie and the cruisers featuring Sal Amato. And uh, he, it's an Eddie and the Cruiser revival show in a CD nightclub somewhere in Jersey, where he just kind of cranks out all the hits, and he's got like an Eddie Eddie uh, Wilson lookalike, and it it just it's he's trying to cash in, he's trying to cash in the nostalgia wave, and we see this show, and it's uncomfortable because it's a really cheesy and really sad like bad nightclub act, which like something out of a bad cruise or something. And with a washed-up star trying to like get the last, last bit of of whatever blood is left in that fifteen minutes of fame, and, and oh, it's it's just it's one of those things where you you kind of feel for the guy and you're kind of embarrassed for him. And uh, you know, we flash back to the fact that that Sal and Frank never really got along that well, uh, and we will eventually get three key moments in the history of the cruisers that sort of 
showed where they were starting to get some cracks in the seams. Sal was very happy to talk to Maggie because Sal wants, you know, the fame. He wants the notice. He wants the notoriety. He doesn't know where the tapes are. And um, there's so there's nothing to be said about that. But as we flash back, um, there's two more cruisers that, that, uh, that he has to talk to, Kenny and Joanne. And before we do that, I, I want to have to give Matthew Lawrence some credit. Matthew Lawrence is an actor who pops up every once in a while. He's got some kind of, he's kind of like a, hey, is that guy? And I believe he's a twin. I think he has a twin brother who, who you might mistake him for. But he's really good in this movie. He plays this insecure Italian guy, this tall, lanky guy when he's younger, and then older, he's this balding guy with with this act that he's trying to hold on to, and he's just, um, he's still insecure, he's still Sal. And you don't hate Sal. Um, I kind of did when I first saw this, but when I saw it later, uh, re-watching it for this episode, I couldn't hate Sal. I felt bad for Sal. I felt bad for Sal that this is what, you know, that, that he can't get over this. And that's basically what a lot of this movie is. Nobody in the cruisers, with the exception of maybe Kenny, who we see very briefly when he has a conversation with uh, with Frank about about Wendell and about, um, about what it was like to be in the cruisers, uh, nobody really got over being the cruisers. Doc can't get over... Um, never, never getting the money from the rights. Frank is starting to realize that his nostalgia is slightly false. We'll see Joanne, who was Eddie's girlfriend. You know, she's got, she'll have issues. And then Sal can't get over the fact that he never, you know, got his chance. That his that his friend died, and and this is what he does. He he finds a lookalike to fill the void. And our, uh, one of the big first big flashbacks is uh, when the band gets an invitation to play a gig at Frank's old college because by this time he dropped out and he started he was a cruiser. And the band doesn't want to go, but he's like, "Oh, but at my old college, in other words, I can show these people up." You know, that sort of I'm going to come back and people are going to know me, but I'm going to be all like, "Yeah, look, I'm cool now, right?" So they go. They go kind of reluctantly, and they stay at a, on a house, a house on campus. And at one point, Frank and Joanne go out walking, and there's some sort of big, like, it's this hokey 50s-looking college thing with, like, a big bonfire, and people running around the bonfire and singing and holding hands, and sort of something out of a bad, you know, <laughs> pre-Animal House, but the thing that we were making fun of in Animal House. And... uh Joanne and Frank, who have kind of had some chemistry already, uh, they kiss. And Eddie does spot them. Uh, although, and instead of, you know, a fight breaking out between the two bands, you know, you kissed my girl, you know, the way it's handled is that Eddie, uh, fr- they're about to go to the gig, and Frank says, well, I got to change. He's like, no, you're going to wear that. And he's like, all right. And so they're playing the, they're playing the, the gig and then Eddie starts to introduce the band and he introduces Frank as Toby Tyler the boy who just escaped from the circus like you know I'm going to humiliate you in front of everybody in the room and and it works well and it's this first clue that I had some good memories of my time with the cruisers but then there were the things that like 
yeah, this wasn't all as, as, as great as it seems. And Kenny kind of points that when Frank goes to visit him in Atlantic City, because Kenny's a blackjack dealer at the time in 1983 or whenever when this is taking place. And even Kenny points out, he's like, dude, remember? Remember Wendell? And Wendell had a heroin addiction that nobody really knew about. Wendell was older. Wendell is played by the actors Michael Tunes, Al Tunes or A-Tunes, who was the saxophone player for the Beaver Brown Band. So um, he, he was a musician. And uh, he... At one point, one of the cruisers, you know, they're about to go, and he's knocking on the door, he's knocking on the window, and he looks in the window, and he can't see, he has to sneak in the window, he sees that Wendell's dead, he's overdosed on heroin, and this is back in the 63 or so, so Wendell's been dead for years, Wendell died before Eddie, and the next night, they're at, they're at the gig, and Eddie can't get, they've, or next night, or the next gig they have, where they've replaced Wendell with another saxophone player, they're playing the song Tender Years, and Eddie can't get through the song and goes off the stage, and actually Joanne sings it. And it's very, very poignant because here is her boyfriend who's just suffering this huge loss, and the show must go on, and she sings it. And I believe that it is available somewhere because there was a third soundtrack released called Eddie and the Cruisers, The Unreleased Tapes, which is alternate takes and versions and other songs from uh, these two movies. Kind of, the record company kind of bleed a little bit of out of this, uh, more out of this, and I think that the Joanne singing Tender Years version is on there. Unfortunately, it is not on iTunes, and I really don't feel like hunting the CD down. So maybe one day I'll get it. I don't know. But, uh... It's a poignant moment because, uh, you know, the reality of this life and the reality of how things go sets in. And and Kenny kind of, he doesn't completely burst Frank's bubble, but it kind of brings us back from the nostalgia to the fact that somebody or something is out there, he wants Eddie's old tapes, and he's trashed a couple of places, and you don't know what they're going to do about it, and... And everything that he remembered about his youth wasn't as great as it it seemed, especially when we get to the flashbacks concerning the abandoned album, which was called The Season in Hell. The title came from uh, the title of of, uh, a book of poems or poem by Arthur Rambeau, who died very young as well. And... It is, like I said, it is. It's not prog rock, but it's it's definitely it's a concept album in an age that the concept album hadn't existed yet. And so it's the idea that Eddie Wilson is is ahead of his time, and they spend all this time recording it. And apparently, the recording sessions are tense. You know, Wendell, I think at this point is already dead, and the band's barely talking to each other. And they finish the record and they give it to. Uh, Lou from Satin Records, the, the record company, and the guy's like, I can't do anything with this. I'm not going to release this. And Eddie loses it. He loses it. He takes the tapes and and he and he just he just he just storms out of the recording studio and uh but not before Sal confronts him and says, you know, why are we recording this? They want on the dark side. And Eddie says, well, I want to be bigger than this. And Sal basically says, again, the thing that basically tells you the reason Sal's not as successful as Sal could have wanted to be, he says, 
why do you want to be something bigger we're just a bunch bunch of bums from jersey and that's when eddie uh, storms out and sal turns to frank and says you ruined this he brought everything was fine until you came along you ruined this and later on eddie takes joanne and the two of them go to a place called the palace of depression and it was it which was an actual place it was a building made of junk located in vinland uh Vinland, New Jersey, uh, built by this kind of homeless guy uh, who just kind of collected all this crap and sculpted it together. And it's all ominous, and I believe they filmed it on site and references it. And uh, Eddie comes, and he sits in what looks like a throne, and he sits down, and he does this whole thing about, you know, here's Eddie Wilson, and, and look, I'm here with all the rest of the other junk. And she's like, what are you talking about? And it's in this last maybe 10 or 15 minutes of the movie which is the end of the movie is where we get a little bit um, I don't want to say cheesy but it gets a little bit over the top at times and this is one of those scenes like I said I really like Michael Pere in this movie and I think he embodies this larger than life bigger than he really is rock and roller way more than anybody else who could have played this role, especially if it was somebody who was known. Because they, from what I understand, they plucked Michael Pere out of like a kitchen in New York where he was working as a line cook or something. And they said, you know, he had been he had been auditioning for things and, and you know, here, you're going to be an actor. And so it was, again, they cast a bunch of unknowns because Behringer was kind of known, but, you know, at the time, not as well known. And but it's 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 an overdone scene because he's doing this sort of like you know hey you know I'm terrible I suck I'm shouting to the heavens and and let me chew the scenery a little bit scene and then eventually he gets in his car and he drives off a bridge and Eddie Wilson is never seen again. But back in the present. There's one more cruiser left for Frank to see, and that's Joanne. And Joanne is is working as a dancer, I think. A dancer or a singer? Um, It's implied she's working as some sort of performer somewhere. I don't know if it's in Jersey or New York City. But uh, they meet at a bar. They have a couple of drinks. And she says that she's been getting weird phone calls where the person will call, the music will play, it'll play tender years, and then they'll hang up. And she wonders if it's Eddie. Or in the very least, she wants it to stop. And he asks her about the tapes. And she takes him to the Palace of Depression where the tapes are. And they get the tapes, and the tapes are there. They go back to Joanne's house, and Joanne, even though she's done pretty well for herself, she has a house... Uh, you know, she's got a steady job performing whatever she does. Is probably has not gotten over Eddie. There are a lot of pictures of her life with Eddie Wilson and Eddie and the cruisers on the wall of her house. And it is that sort of, it's almost, it's a shrine on some level. And it's kind of a sad memorial on another because it's been about 20 years. And, uh, and she's you can tell that her grief has never ended. And at one point, while they're there, and and Frank and her are talking, uh, Joanne gets a phone call. And it's 
two rings and then nobody's on the line. You know, like then they stop. It stops ringing. She said that's Eddie's signal. And and they get the call. And they also get the call about the, uh, the with the music and and she's like, I can't imagine why they're doing this. But when she gets this call, she's like, that's the signal. That's the signal he used to to give me. And then he'd show up in his car and his flashes high beams and low beams and. So she hears it, and then she gets another call, and she goes in the other room. She she starts talking, and it sounds like it's Eddie on the other line. We don't hear the voice, but she's talking to Eddie, and Eddie wants the tapes, and Eddie's going to show up. So Frank kind of sneaks out of the house as she goes upstairs to get ready. Again, Helen Schneider plays it a little bit... It's a little bit weird... Like she's almost become possessed now by the ghost of of who she was, and yes, Eddie, I'll come see you. Like it's really, really an odd scene. It's uncomfortable to a certain point, and you're trying to not crack up a little bit. So, like I said, the ending of the movie is decent. It's good. I like it. It's just there are points where the acting is a little too much. Um, So Joanne comes down. Frank is gone. Frank's not gone from the property, though. Frank has pulled his car into the garage, a bar and garage off off away from the house, and he's hiding behind a tree because somebody pulls up in the same 57 type of 57 Chevy that Eddie Wilson used to drive. And he flashes his high beams, he flashes his low beams, and she comes out and she's holding the tapes. Frank comes running up to the car, opens the door, and pulls the guy out, and he's about to punch him when he's like, Doc, the whole time, Doc was going after the tapes. He wanted the tapes. To him, this is his his ticket out of out of mediocrity. This is his one last shot. He regrets for 20 years never making it with this band, never having the opportunity to do something bigger than he was. And he knew these tapes were there. He started hearing the music being played. He's like, I got to get these tapes so he manipulated he had nothing to do with maggie foley that was a coincidence but once maggie kept coming around he was like all right i'm going to use this as my opportunity and he he was the one who trashed frank's place he's he probably trashed his own place to to cover up you know throw him off the trail and he since he's kind of the man of a thousand voices dj he could do a decent imitation of eddie wilson and the three of them have a moment where they realize to them, at least in their head, and, 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 and at least in their head, and, and it's different from the book. The ending of the book is much darker than the ending of the film. Um, but even so, there is a slight moment where all three of them, you can tell they realize that Eddie's gone. And now we have these tapes. And so Doc gets in his car, and, and Frank and, and Joanne are like, give him the tapes do it right this time and this is where it gets a little cheesy and you could be it, it takes you out of the movie a little because Joe Pantoliano just does this whole thing I'm going to do it right man I'm going to do it for Eddie for Eddie and everybody yeah we're going to do it man we're going to do it it's going to be great and then and then he roars off you know in the 57 Chevy and you hear Frank go yeah go ahead Doc you go Doc and it's just like oh my god could you have just done it a little more subtly just a little more subtle please um but Frank gets the girl at the end. He goes, Joanne's like, come on, let's go inside. And that sense I get that there's closure there. 
And we end the film with Maggie uh, on the news doing her intro to the story and saying that they, they have a season in hell and we're going to debut it tonight. And they start playing what was on the soundtrack called The Fire Suite, Season of Hell Fire Suite. And, uh, and it's, it's way different from what you heard from the other Cruiser's music. You heard, heard a hint of it playing in the studio when uh, they were turning the tapes in, when everybody was tense at each other. And the last shot of the movie is uh, one of those classic, like, they don't have this. They, this is totally one of those things from the 70s and 80s and 60s films that you don't get anymore. But the TVs in the window of the store and everybody's kind of on the store, standing outside the store watching the television. Yeah, totally of its time. And they're playing this and everybody, they're all showing the same thing because that's what TVs do. TV stores do. And, and there's a guy, there's a guy standing in front of there and we get to this symbol uh, crash in a season in hell and we get a close-up of the guy's face and it's Eddie Wilson. He's got a beard and that's the big reveal at the end of the movie. And he smiles and he walks away and the credits roll. And it's such a great ending because it's like, oh wow, he you know, and and he smiles because it's like you know this is my music now, and and people are actually appreciating it. There's a satisfaction from that. Maybe it's closure for him. And I just I I can't you know it, this is a movie that is not up there with like you know your <laughs> your your great dramatic rock and roll movies. It's not up there with your American Graffiti or anything like that. But at the same time, it's a nostalgia flick for the early '60s, and it's. And it's the story of a band and a group of people coming to terms with their past lives. One thing the, the, the costumers and, and makeup people do really well is make these people look 20 and 40 in a way, or 20 in their, 30, or, or in their early 20s and their late 30s or whatever in a really, really good way. Um, they, they play with Sal's hair and... and uh, Behringer always kind of looks a little older than he is because he's got that very hard-looking, leathery face. But um, Behringer, when when he's young, Frank looks like a really like a baby. But when he's old, he looks like thirty-year-old something, forty-year-old something. Uh, Tom Behringer, and Behringer's, you know, he's always an actor that whenever I've seen him in something, I've really liked him in something. I think the first movie I saw him in was a movie he did with Sidney Poitier and Kirstie Alley called Hard to Kill. Was it Hard to... No, that was... That was a Steven Seagal movie. What the hell was the name of that? Oh, crap. It's going to bug me. Uh, it was from like about 87. They're protecting her. Sidney Poitier is the old cop, and it's it's a really good movie, too. Um, I'm going to have to go look that up. But Behringer kind of gives it a little bit of a subtlety. He's rarely, if ever, over the top and he's 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 just kind of this got this nice guy but he's a little tough underneath type and and he he is the perfect frank because he's the type of guy who you could tell kind of everybody in the band or everybody kind of likes he's likable enough to go around everybody and be the one to track everybody down uh Barkin is good like i said she doesn't have much to do in the movie she's a plot device for the most part her character's a plot device for the most part but um, damn if she didn't remind me of Diane Sawyer and, and Ellen Barkin is very sexy uh, I mentioned how Matthew Lawrence playing Sal plays the perfect kind of washed up Sal type of Sal this 
this insecure wannabe guy who is kind of sad, you know, like really wants approval from the people around him. And Helen Schneider's really good as Joanne. She's she's very pretty, and uh, and is sexy and knows it um, when she's with the cruisers. But the moment she gives Hel- the moment she gives Joanne a vulnerability, first at the college when she's talking to Frank because she has a conversation with Frank about you know how they ended up where they are, and she says that, you know, her high school guidance counselor told her that she would make a good mother <laughs> or, like, a secretary or something, and she's like, no, I don't think I'm going to do that. Um, and, you know, she should be pregnant by now, and you know, because she's out of high school. And then years later, you know, and she walks to the bar and recognizes Frank, and, and, and the conversation they have, it's, it's as natural as any two old friends getting together can be. And there is some chemistry between the two of them what works. And like I said, Perret is just really good as Eddie Wilson. Um, he is this sort of energetic, enthusiastic, balls-out, rock-and-roll type of guy. Yeah, there are times when he's a little over the top, but at the same time, it, you feel the energy in there, especially from a, from a young guy like that. And the Springsteen comparisons are apt, but um, maybe it's just because I'm a fan of Springsteen that I don't really mind it. Uh, and and the music is really good, too. Like I said, I don't think this is the type of music that would have played back in 63, but John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band do a great job in the soundtrack, and the soundtrack is, was, a, was a CD I used to listen to from time to time and still in, enjoy it. Um, and... Uh, Apparently, uh, one of the music uh, supervisors was Kenny Vance, who was a, a member of uh, Jay and the Americans, and they kind of got a little bit uh, got a little bit of uh, inspiration from him, and 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 did, tried to uh, tried to come up with uh, the right sound, but he also Davidson, the, the director, also didn't want to lose sight of the fact that they were a Jersey bar band, and he did think of Springsteen. So, um, Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band had gotten Springsteen comparisons, and they found them. the The soundtrack uh, was released in um, eighty three, eighty four, and it actually climbed the charts. It, the soundtrack went quadruple platinum. Mainly because the movie got shown so much on HBO that people wanted to see it, and it, they re-released it in '84. And uh, nine months after the film uh, was released in theaters, "On the Dark Side" was the number one song on the ba- Billboard Mainstream Rock and uh, and Heat Seeker charts, and number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. Uh, Tender Years also peaked at 31 in the Hot 100. So it did pretty well. And Cafferty and Beaver Brown would come back for the sequel, Eddie and the Cruisers 2, Eddie Lives, which um, I will talk about in just a moment after this break. Hello, podcast listener. Do you like... Ready to form Voltron! Or maybe... How about I am Batman? Or this is a job for Superman. Do you remember Power Rangers? Or this? Right away, Michael. Or maybe even this? Autobots transform. <laughs> or this? By the power of Grayskull. Or for the honor of Gray 
Or have you seen the latest episode of... Hello. I'm the Doctor. If you answered yes to any of these questions, then check out Charlie's GeekCast, hosted by me, Charlie Niemeyer. Charlie's GeekCast is a bi-weekly podcast covering comics and other geek stuff. The first episode of each month is devoted to comics, where I look at random comics from my collection. The other episode of the month is devoted to whatever else I want to talk about, such as movies, TV shows, cartoons, video games, and more. Feel free to check it out at www.charliesgeekcast.com. rock and roll legends of all time Eddie Wilson of Eddie and the Cruisers is back 20 years ago he mysteriously disappeared what really happened to Eddie Wilson Eddie Wilson was it And don't say who you are, just play. Do you think this is Eddie? Don't you? We've had reports that he's been seen in 12 states and about his friends. And I won't shortcut the music. You might want to capitalize on that. If you were alive today, I would be right there next to you. I still don't remember what happened. And I just won't let you.
So, I'm not going to talk too much about Eddie and the Cruisers 2. Uh, this is a movie that pops up on cable on like one of these, one of the really, really crappy like we can't afford to buy any movie, <laughs> movie, movie channels at all. Um, it is. I'm amazed it didn't win a Razzie. Uh, it is. I hate to I hate to crap on a um, on a movie, but it's not it's not a terribly good movie. Um, just a little bit of data on it before I before I uh, let you know you know what it's about and 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 how and how it is. Uh, its domestic total gross was five hundred thirty six thousand five hundred eight dollars. It was released on August eighteenth, nineteen eighty nine, and by Scotty Brothers Films. Scotty Brothers uh, Record Company released the soundtrack, and the only other notable artist that I remember from Scotty Brothers Records was Weird Al Yankovic, uh, whom I love. It is the 189th highest-grossing movie of 1989. Um, having gone back to, uh, if you go back a couple episodes, I was talking about 1989 when I was talking about how I got to college. Of course, the biggest movie in 1989 was Batman. It did not really finish ahead of anything that is of note. It actually finished behind a re-release of The Wizard of Oz. The theatrical release of Akira made less money, and it finished ahead of The Toxic Avenger 3, The Last Temptation of Toxie. Oh, it beat out Teen Witch. Eddie and the Cruisers 2 made more money than Teen Witch. So there you go, top that. Uh, so um, the movie is was made by a Canadian. It was shot in about 30 days. It was takes place mostly in Montreal. And the premise of the movie is that Eddie Wilson has been in hiding and is living in Montreal, and he's working as a construction worker under the name Joe West. Uh, the events of the original film have prompted a release of the album A Season in Hell and this has prompted the mu- the music of Eddie Wilson to go even further up the charts. But, whereas we saw Eddie kind of satisfied at the end of the first movie, now anytime he hears his music he like want- he leaves the room, punches a radio, and is all pissy. And he goes to New York City to see a to see this like Eddie Wilson lookalike contest, and he's still pissy, and he stands on the Jersey Shore, and we get the feeling that um, this isn't going to be a good sequel because it it it, uh, it has one of those really bad sequel tropes, which is they actually reuse footage from the original movie, which is that. Uh, and they do this three or four times. Um, first, with this scene from the original movie where Frank and Eddie were talking on the beach, and Eddie was giving his talk about how, yeah, when, you know, I want to be more than than I was, and and you know, I think we can do something better. And Frank's kind of listening to him and nodding. Well, I guess they couldn't get the permission from Tom Berenger to use footage of him, or they would have had to pay him, and they couldn't. So they just edited in very, very badly Sal sitting on the beach. And it wasn't Sal in the original movie. In fact, it completely contradicts what Sal said about being a bunch of bums from Jersey. And I remember um, I rent had seen the movie, and I rented one, and I remember being sick one day, or quote-unquote sick. I remember specifically that I wasn't feeling well, 
And uh, I had asked my dad, I was like, dad, I don't feel really great. I'm not going to go to school. And nine times out of 10, my father was like, go to school. But I was a senior in high school. He's like, yeah, just stay home. And I, we rent, went out and rented Eddie and Eddie and the Cruisers too. And I sat and watched it. And he had watched it too. He liked it a lot more better than I did. The music was really good. But this movie, man, it's like the premise is that, okay, after all this starts to happen, Michael Pere, um goes, you know, as Eddie goes, Eddie goes to a bar. He sees this band play. He, he makes fun of the band, you know, or, or whatever. And the the lead singer of the band, who's this guy named Rick Diesel, says, "Oh well, you, well, you're so good, you play guitar." And Eddie gets on stage as Joe gets on stage and starts playing guitar, and he's really good. And Rick tracks him, and and so uh, simultaneously, this artist woman tracks Eddie uh, Joe down, and then Rick tracks him down, and and so he starts sleeping with the artist, and then, um, and and ends up joining Rick's band, and and starts forming this band called Rock Solid. Oh yeah, and they start touring. But basically, it's scene after scene after scene after scene of Joe or Eddie or whatever we want to call him at this point saying, "Oh, the music! You gotta listen to the music. It's all of the music. The music's gotta be pure." And it's just like I loved Michael Perry in the first movie, and and he does the best he can with what he has to work with. But good. God, half this script sucks. And it really seems that a lot of the scenes of dialogue are just basically filler for when they have another montage or when they have another clip of Eddie and his new band playing uh, because that's going to sell records. And little by little, it comes out that he's Eddie Wilson. Uh, We know he's Eddie Wilson because we're damn sure he's Eddie Wilson because it's more or less duh. But... um, the girl figured out because he told her and then the saxophone player who at one point knew Wendell confronts him during one of Eddie's little temper tantrums about the music the music and we're, we're and something about how Rick booked a gig that was a big gig and he doesn't want to play it because he's not ready and all this stuff because it's obviously Eddie's insecure about you know performing and the, the he's burning his book of lyrics, and and the guy comes up to him. And he says, "Wow, I'd be ashamed to throw away so many great songs by Eddie Wilson." He's like, "How did you know?" He's like, "I knew by how you sounded." And you're like, "What?" Um, and the movie, you know, and the whole time Sal's the only other one in the movie, and he's the one that they kind of the record company, the record company Satin Records is releasing a season in hell, and they in the season in hell they found another tape, and in another t- in this other tape was this session with all these great blues legends, and Bo Diddley's one of them because he has a cameo in the movie, and the idea was that. The sessions were done before Wendell died. So, but but they've been perpetrating this hoax uh, that Eddie's alive it's to make more money to get more interested. They're releasing the songs one by one. This big media event. Martha Quinn's in the movie, and um, it actually the blues session is the only thing from the original novel that wasn't in the original movie that I was like okay well there's one connection but otherwise there's so much contradicting going on between this movie and the other one that you almost want to just forget it in fact on P.F. Kluge's website he refers to the, the, the movie made by people who were talentless because he liked the other movie apparently but two is just ridiculous and supposedly this is one of those movies that just about everybody um, who uh 
made it more or less, at least the main participants came back kind of regretted making eventually, but hey, you made it, right? But um, it got panned. It got panned, uh, and, you know, needless to say, before I should get to the, the plot before I get to the credits, but needless to say, um, the, the movie ends with uh, rock-solid playing a gig at opening the Montreal Music Festival. And everybody in, in this band is like 80s hair guys, like poodle hair drummer and this new wave keyboard guy looking guy and and Rick Diesel. And then you have uh, the saxophonist, who's actually a halfway decent actor, but has like, he's black and he's got like um, kind of a high top fade, but like, pulls like long hair in the back so it's almost like a black guy mullet with but he always keeps it in a ponytail it's really hard to describe but at the end um eddie goes and sees sal as eddie first of all sal gets ticked off eddie then eventually takes him to the place where they recorded the sessions he tells him what the sessions were really were and he says you know this was a once in a, this was a huge lifetime chance for me but for me it was but for them, it was probably just another jam session or something, and he, he felt really, really small, and then he tried to make a season in hell, and Sal kind of forgives him. He's like, I need you, Sal. And backstage uh, at the gig, um, Rick had sent Satin Record a note saying, I have this guy, my least singer in my band. He sounds a lot like Eddie Wilson. I think you'd be interested in signing him since you put it out. You know, this is new music unbeknownst to him, the guy who owns Satin Records is the same guy who rejected a season hell 20 years before, and when he shows up, this guy Lou looks at Eddie, who is now Eddie Eddie, but they're still calling him Joe, and says, well, I'll be. It's Eddie. We're going to do it right this time. We're going to do it your way, Eddie. And it goes without saying that the two guys who are the record executives in the movie are the biggest, slimiest pieces of crap ever. Oh my god, it's just one stereotype and one caricature and one stock character after another. And at the end, Eddie gets on stage. They well, First, he tries to run, and the, the artist chick gets in the car with him, and she's like, well, you're gonna, we're going to drive off a bridge. Maybe we'll get it right this time. And so she says, you know, everybody's going to know you're alive tomorrow, but tonight you're you. Just play your music, of course. So he gets on stage. They open with the first song, and the music is decent. The John Caffrey, the Brevo Brown band is cool. The performances are dumb. You know, like, you know, the, the way they're shaking their butts and they're moving on stage and stuff are like, choreograph this. Why did you choreograph this? Uh, but he plays a song and then he does the intro of the band uh, after the first song. And instead of saying, I'm Joe West, he says, me, I'm Eddie Wilson in the whole stadium. And apparently they filmed it right before a Bon Jovi concert between the opening act, which was Skid Row, and then the headliner Bon Jovi in Vegas. And the whole crowd starts going, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. And they start performing a John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown song, Beaver Brown Band song called uh, Pride and Passion, which is actually a good song. But, but for all the decency of the soundtrack, which isn't half bad, this movie is just skippable, really skippable, and I really probably only, I this is the second time I've only ever watched it, and probably will never watch it again, and it's kind of sad that a movie is good, and is kind of forgotten to a certain extent, as Eddie and the Cruisers has such a bad sequel associated to it, Eddie and the Cruisers 2, Eddie Lives, because I really 
like the novel, and I love the film. The film is now it's thirty years old, and uh, and, and and granted, my experience with it only goes back as far as twenty years, but. The idea behind nostalgia and the reality that it comes with, and the idea of ghosts, ghosts from your past, uh, I, I love that, and I love how that is explored. Um, and I'm glad that I, at least, even if I had to sit through a bad sequel, I got the chance to uh, check it out one more time. And you can check it out too. It's available on net. Actually, both movies are available on Netflix. They pop up on cable every once in a while, and you can buy them on Amazon.com. Come back next time in a couple of weeks. I have a couple of things in the fire. I'm not exactly sure what I'm going to get out. But until then, if you're interested in emailing me, you can do so at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can post on the Facebook page and on the blog. Thank you very much for listening, and... Take care. have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness.